Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. My name's Eric. If you haven't met me, we'd love to get to know you and answer any questions you might have. And uh, that includes online. We'd love to answer questions. You can email or text in. And uh, we're excited to continue our series in 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you want to turn there. Uh, this morning, some fun things to, to do before we get into our text. Um, first is we're going to uh, just pray for our Uganda team. And so we have a team going up to Uganda. And every year we try to do two to three trips. Um, this year we're able to do one, as you know, some of the travel restrictions and just the difficulties with that. So we're excited uh, that we're able to send a team to go uh, share the gospel, to help strengthen the ministry there. Uh, Pastor Wilford has a, a medical center there where they help meet the needs of the people in that community. And while they're there, it's really smart. Um, they're stuck for three to four hours. And so we get to evangelize to them, right? We get to share the gospel because they have nowhere else to go, right? And then there's a church right next to it. And so we're able to say, hey, that's where you can go to be discipled and grow in your faith. And so uh, we help with the medical supplies, teaching the children, uh, teaching at the churches, and just kind of encourage them in their faith. Uh, let them know that God loves them. He sees them uh, as hard as it's been over there during the pandemic. And so we're grateful for that opportunity. Uh, they'll also be dedicating a church there that we're excited uh, for God to plant another church. And so just keep them in your prayers. And then later on in the summer, uh, we'll have a report and just share what God did through that. So keep them in your prayers as they go. And then the second piece, is we, we, we mentioned this briefly last week, um, that we have um, a couple from our church who's gone to Central Asia to plant a church where there's no church, there's no Bible, um, that they would stay the course, uh, translate a Bible, raise up mature elders, and have a church. And so uh, one of the things we're trying to do is that, you know, they're a part of our church family, and they've left to go over there. And so the hard part is a lot's happened in two to three years, hasn't it? There's a lot of new faces. And so we would love for you to meet them and get to know them and know that you're here praying for them and cheering for them and a part uh, of your heart to see uh, the church go where there is no church, uh, to fulfill Matthew 28, to make disciples in all nations. So they'll be here through the summer. And so just meet with them, ask them their name, buy them lunch, uh, ask to hear their story uh, so that they know uh, as our church is growing that they're a part of it and that you know them as well. Amen? It's awesome stuff. So let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you so much. We have a church that cares about sending people to the nations, uh, to send Christians, to share the gospel, to lift up other Christians and encourage them in their faith. Uh, it's our prayer you take our Uganda team there safely and they'd be able to, with uh, courage and stamina and energy, proclaim the goodness of who you are, um, that there's hope in eternal life, that there's forgiveness of sins, uh, that the, the pastors would be encouraged, that the churches would be strengthened. Uh, and we thank you in advance for that work you will do over there. And we're just grateful that we get to be a part of it. Uh, we thank you for Nathan and Shannon and their faithfulness uh, to learn the language and to stay the course. Pray that their time here would be uh, fruitful and rest and, and would be encouraging and our church would rally around them, love them and encourage them uh, to send them back to finish the mission, to continue to uh, reach people who don't know you and to, to translate a Bible that doesn't exist. And so we love you and we love your heart and we thank you that we get to participate and sharing your forgiveness of sins and your glory to all the nations. We thank you for that. And we pray that now your word would be taught, 
uh, that it would encourage us, that it would equip us, uh, that it would be your words and not mine. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so what's important here is that we remember we're in the middle of a story, right? It's a true story with real people and real events that happen. And so when you're seeing a narrative, it's important that we realize there's not always an imperative within the narrative to hang on. Uh, like in the New Testament, there's direct commands. And it's like, don't do this, don't do this, do do this. Uh, in a narrative, what we're looking for is what is God teaching us in this event that we can learn, that we can grow, and we can take from. And so this is a, a, a fabulous passage where we see um, what it's like to reject God and just how God deals with his people, how he warns his people, uh, and how they're blinded by jealousy and blinded by envy. And so we're going to look at three keys uh, that, that, that kind of are in the process of rejecting God so that we might do the opposite and learn from them. So we're going to learn, uh, first key is forgetting what the Lord has done. The second will be is that we leverage sin. And the third is that we create a new system. And we kind of take those three steps and then you'll find yourself uh, rejecting God, whether it be directly or, or indirectly. You know, there's indirect ways we reject what the Lord is doing or what the Lord is asking. Just some questions for you to ponder through. You can write them down or think, but as you're reading this text, there's all these questions that arise, and we can't answer all of them, but I want you to think through some of these. Is how bad do things have to get until I'm willing to change or trust the Lord instead of trusting myself? Because when you're looking at Israel, you're just screaming like, haven't you guys learned? Do you guys feel that in the tension? It's like God's doing these amazing things. Like how bad does it have to get? It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Next is how can we remember what God has done? Not just now, but 400 years from now. I don't think we think like that often. How will our kids, 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 kids? Uh, because God in this passage draws back on Egypt and he's like, even since then they've been like this. And so God works all throughout history. And how are we, you know, capturing that, communicating that, teaching that? And the last question is for yourself is, how can I trust the Lord more? Because what it's going to come down to is you'll see Samuel, a man who deeply trusts God. Uh, and then what you'll have is Israel, who deeply just wants to be like the world. And ultimately, we want to trust the Lord. So first is we forget what the Lord has done. And they come off. Uh, Israel, and right away, they're like, hey, Samuel, first three verses here, um, your sons are evil, so like we need a king. And it's like, have you already forgotten? You guys remember what happened a few chapters ago? Eli had bad sons, didn't he? Okay, we're not reading the text. That's okay. Go back and read it, okay? Yes, he had sons. Yes, they were evil. And yes, God punished them. And God punished Eli himself. And so this whole argument, it's very fictitious. God deals with it, but they're using it to say, you know what, no, we need a king now because you're, you're old and um, your sons are terrible. And so they've already forgotten, no, God will deal with that evil. He will deal with that sin. Two, they're forgetting why, what is so bad that you need a king. You read verse one and it says, Samuel's old in his age. We read last week that God has put his hand over Israel and he had thwarted the Philistines. So the Philistines aren't taking their food, taking their money. Like, so they can't oppose them. They're not in opposition. They're being provided for. So they've already forgotten that God's been providing for years. 
that he's protecting their military interests. He defeated, remember the false god Dagon? He's like standing and the Ark of the Covenant causes it to fall. Right? God has already shown himself to be bigger and to be able. And so the question is, how quick do we forget and how can we not? A question to start thinking through now is, you know, how soon will we forget what God has done in COVID-19? You know, if you, there's some churches maybe to have a different take on this, they've uh, been ravaged by COVID-19. But if you were to look at our church, just look at what God is doing. God's done great things, hasn't he? Okay, the four of us see this. The four of you, yes, you are right. Everybody else didn't know, so we're going to tell them. Right? God's grown our church, and that's cool. But what's really cool is kind of the narrative behind why. As people are saying, you know what, I need to take my faith more serious. I'm realizing I can't not know what the Bible says. People are saying, I realize, man, i got to be in church. God created us to worship, to fellowship, to be together. People are saying, man, i got to equip my kids with God's word. They need to know these things. People are taking their faith serious. People are trusting the Lord uh, in suffering. And so those are all good things, wouldn't you say? See, now all of you can say yes, because you know, okay? You know. And why is this important? Because there will be probably a COVID-33, right? I'm not claiming to be a prophet, but there will. And people are going to freak out. And there's going to be this need for remember what the Lord has done. Slow your roll. Calm down. Let me tell you how God acted. Let me tell you how God persevered, how God protected the providence of God. And if it's not COVID-33, there will come a time, I imagine, I'm not trying to be prophetic, I imagine, that they will try to shut down the church. Is that a fair assumption, potentially, right? I'm not claiming it, I'm just, right? But we need to remember how important it is to gather. We need to remember what the Lord taught us. So as that future generation maybe is afraid and they're scared, that they're, they're able to draw back and be like, no, 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 remember, 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 because the quicker and the easier we forget what God's done, it's the quicker and easier path for us to put ourselves in charge. Because it, it's as if God didn't do anything. And so we go, you know what, God, that, that was great for them, but like now we need to lead ourselves. And so maybe an important facet is for you to think through some categories here. You know, how can you remember what God's done to you personally? How, how can you remember how maybe pre-Christ, what your life was like, the insecurity, the fear, the hopelessness, the addiction, whatever that was, that's who you were pre-Christ, and then he saves you. And how thankful you are he saved you. It's those moments where you're, you're in this kind of dilemma of, do I trust the Lord, but the world looks appetizing? No, no, I remember what he did. I got to stay faithful. Half of you are like, I can't identify with that. You've been raised Christian. That's okay. Think of it this way. Where would you be if you weren't a Christian? What would have happened in your life? How would have you handled the pandemic? What could you potentially maybe be addicted to or fallen into if he was not there walking with you, guiding you, loving you, providing for you? See, these are the kind of things we have to keep in the front of our minds. Uh, this is why Samuel's like, are you guys kidding? Like, God's been the king. He is the king. And God's like, no, this isn't new. And he goes all the way back for 450 years. For, since Egypt, they, they continually forget. And they forget. 
and they forget. Uh, another angle to this would be not just to remember what God has done, but remember who God is. This is important because he's saying he's the king. And maybe sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, well, what is the king? What does the king do? I don't really understand that. We can understand this. He's creator. We understand that, right? Because so when he's the creator, he decides right and wrong. He decides you're going to be male or female. He decides, you know, you're going to be born in this land or in that land. He decides these things. And so we start saying things like, you know, my body, my choice. Not really. Whose body is it? It's not a trick question. It's the Lord's, isn't it? What does Romans 9 say? He's the potter, we're the clay. Who owns the clay? The potter. Who's the potter? God. He owns the money. He owns the earth. He owns us. He creates all things. So when you start thinking about kind of going down your own path, you think, wait, wait, I have no really right to do that. He created. He controls all things. So keeping that in our mind, you know what? I need to run this through the Lord. I need to... I need to remember what he's done. I need to figure out a way to, to keep him at the central focus of my mind. I need to remember that he judges sin, that he brings victory, so that I'm not tempted to do essentially the next part, leverage sin. Because when we're forgetting what the Lord has done, it's real easy to be like, oh, this isn't working and, and we need to do something else. Here's what I mean. You come right into verse 4, and what does it say? It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. Saying, look, because of their sin, we can't listen to God anymore. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. You don't have to be afraid. There's not like a, an F or F minus or something being handed out. It doesn't make sense, but we do it all the time. Here's how. People will say, you know, I, I don't go to church anymore. Well, why not? Oh, the pastor had a moral failure. Okay, duly noted, but what are they doing? They're using his sin to ne negate God's command. That's a pretty one for one, isn't it? Okay, you're like, oh, I don't know about that, pastor. Let's think through this a little bit more. I don't know if you guys remember Joshua Harris, right? He was polarizing in my childhood, had that purity card and had to take the class and sign it and everyone made fun of me for it, right? Just me. Okay, you aren't traumatized. But just think through this, right? Guy writes a book on purity and dating. Years later, walks it back, says, hey, I'm not a Christian, don't believe in the Lord. People are like, oh, I don't believe anything he says. I knew it. We should be able to do whatever we want, have sex before marriage. Like, just going nuts. And it's like, yes, he sinned, but that doesn't mean what he taught from the Bible was wrong. Just because someone fails doesn't mean God was wrong. God upholds his word. He is always right. He is always correct. And the people will say, well, I was hurt at this church by these people. Okay, so maybe you can't trust the leadership. Maybe you, you, you have relationships you can't get over. But that doesn't mean you don't go to church, you don't read your Bible, and you're not a practicing Christian. That's not permission to not listen to the king. There's no permission in our sinfulness that says that I don't have to listen to God now. I'm gonna take it another step. This happens in marriage counseling all the time. I'll say, what, what's going on? Husband or wife is having an affair. 
You know what the first thing they do? Blame the couple, blame the spouse. He doesn't pay any attention to me. So I want you to imagine going to the Lord. He's like, why are you having this affair? You're like, well, he neglects me. God's like, okay, I totally understand. Cheat all you want. That makes sense to God. Few of you laugh, but most of you, you get that, right? God's not like, totally understand. It's like, yeah, so what? Okay, that's bad. You need to fix your marriage, not cheat. You, You need to have some counseling. You need to repent. You need to engage each other like you said you would. You cannot use people as permission to negate what the king has said. That's exactly what's going on in this text. They want to leverage the injustice and leverage the bribes of the sons and say, hey, we need a king. We need to go a different direction. Now, here's the question. Has God done anything to to communicate he doesn't care and he can't provide? No. No. So, so it's not about God lacking. It's about them wanting something else more. And then hiding under the umbrella of sin as an excuse to not do what God has commanded. That's a problem in our churches, isn't it? Okay. So what we have to see is we are to be faithful to God and God's design no matter what. Because there's unintended consequences when we divorce the Bible because of people. And essentially what you're going to see in this text, he's saying like, look, Samuel prays to the Lord. He's like, hey, they want a king. And God's like, yep, I got it. Give them exactly what they want. Those are the scariest words in all the Bible, aren't they? Give them what they want. Give them what they want. And then he says this, show them what it will do. And you look through verse 10 down, He says, this is what's going to happen to their sons. This is what's going to happen to their daughters. This is what's going to happen to their land. There's all these consequences to moving away from God as king. So, So we have to think through that. Don't just leverage sin to change God. Think through the the consequences of the decision. Think through, like, if you take away God, I shouldn't have to listen to him. I should be able to do what I want. Well, you take away God. You don't have a right and a wrong, right? Because he's the moral law giver. You don't have a right and a wrong. You don't have a good and an evil. So the one you have, you essentially have people deciding what is right and wrong. And they get a majority, they determine it, and then they force it on the minority. And then the minority gets angry, overthrows the majority, creates a new truth, and pushes it back down on the minority. Does that sound familiar at all? Okay, that's how our world's working. It's called communism. But it's being played out in morality. How are you going to teach your kids what's right and wrong? It's like, hey, this is wrong, but in 10 years it might change, so I'm really sorry if I'm you know, doing this mean. But there's a chance that we get a bigger group of people who think this is okay, and then they might make it okay. So for now, no, but maybe yes later. It's an awesome way to parent, isn't it? It's not a trick question, people. No! No, 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 no. There are consequences to not having a God. There's no hope in suffering. There's no eternal life. There's no eternal purpose. Suffering is just suffering. And see, these are not the consequences people think through. They're like, Israel's not like anti-God. They just want to do what they want to do. Yeah, we'll keep God. And God even says, you'll cry out to me later. 
and they do. But essentially what we have to realize is just because there's faulty leaders, to dismiss God as king has huge consequences. And essentially we have to answer this question within the text. Would I rather trust God and maybe look foolish and weird or would I rather trust the world and trust myself and fit in? Because once we've leveraged the sin, once we've leveraged the problem, what do we do? We create a new system. That's what Israel's trying to do. And we don't like this system. A theocracy, God in charge, God is king. Theo, God, God in charge, right? We want a monarchy, man in charge, one man. We want that system to change, and it needs to change because of the sins of Samuel's sons. So essentially, they leverage that sin and say, we have to create a new system. We have to create a new way to be. And God says, okay, you don't like my system. You don't like my ways. There is a consequence to that. Now, we're not moving from a monarchy to a theocracy or a democracy, we kind of have a different thing going on. Is that people say, you know what, God, I don't like the outcome of church, so I'm going to change church. You don't need elders to go to church. You don't need to sing songs that are biblical. You don't need to open your Bible. You just need to love people and love Jesus. That's all you need to do. Change the system. Why? Because we don't like the people coming out of the system. But God makes church very specific in his word, doesn't he? We walk through Titus. There will be elders that govern and rule and teach. And we're to worship and sing accurate words to God and his goodness and his greatness. We're to commune and remember him through communion. We're to have fellowship and serve and confess sin. God says, this is the system. See, but this is what happens. We kind of, like Israel, we feel embarrassed. You think of Israel, they're, they're meeting with Canaanites, they're meeting with Philistines, and they're like, where's your king? And they're like, well, kind of invisible, you can't really see him, but like he's really powerful, and he did a lot of big things, you know, to the Egyptians. They're like, yeah, but like, who's your guy? Well, Samuel's kind of our guy, but he's not really our guy. Where's your military? Well, we kind of bang pots and pans, and sometimes we blow trumpets, and walls fall, and we win. That's a little embarrassing, don't you think? Okay? So you're a Christian and you're, you're faced with the same thing. Like, oh, you believe in that book? Well, kind of, well yeah, well, like these parts, right? We, we thought it was cool to believe in creation from the Bible until evolution came. And they're like, you're really dumb. How could you believe in that? We came from monkeys, obviously. And you're like, that sounds so much smarter. Yes. Really? But anyway, so you're looking through that. And it's like, no, 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 we'll change inerrancy. The atonement, really? That's kind of bloody. You really believe that? It's kind of barbaric. It's like, well, you know, back then, maybe, you know, I don't know. It's just an act of love. Just an act. Why? Because you're embarrassed. Marriage is between a man and a woman. You really, you really think that? Well, no, well, there's some Christians, me, you know, more. This is what's happening. We're embarrassed. You believe in a real hell? You know that traumatizes children? can't believe you believe that. You, you think there's only one, one way? So we're sitting there going, oh, God, you need a new system because like, people don't like the God in the Bible. They don't like that, so let's change it. Let's change the system. You don't need to come to church. You don't need to sing. You don't need to give. You don't need to serve. You don't need to confess sin. You don't need to live from it. You just need to kind of say you're a Christian and you're good. 
You see, this change it has two derivatives. It comes one from them forgetting what God has done, wanting to blame other people's sin, all for the purpose of what? Wanting to be like the other nations. Uh, look how specific it is in the text. Jump down here in, in, verse, in verse 20. It says, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. They're jealous. They want to have a big, strong guy with a sword and chariots, you know, and all the swag that comes with it, right? The emblems and the belts and the helmets. And be like, yeah, we want that. We want to be able to look over at the Philistines and be like, yeah, well, our king's really tall and our king can beat your king up. You're like, I don't get that from the text. Look at what he says. And that our king might judge us and go out before us and fight. See, our king's the best king. He has a sword and he'll win. See, that's envy. That's jealousy. And here's the thing. How can we be jealous of non-Christians? Does that make any sense to us? Does it make any sense that we would be jealous of people who don't know the Lord and are on a track for help? Yeah, I'm so jealous. What? That tracks no sense. And essentially what you have is they're, they're, they're not looking, they're not thinking through this. They're just looking at the immediacy. Well, they have an army and they have a king and they have this thing and we want that. The Bible warns this, James chapter 4, 1 through 7. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. You see in this? It's like this envy blinds you. It drives you. So we're going to be like them no matter what it takes. And we'll hurt people. We'll put people down. Whatever it takes, we need it. Verse 4, you adulterous people, you do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is very clear, isn't it? They've rejected him as the king. They want to be like the world. They want a physical king. He says, or do you suppose that it's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made dwell in us? He's saying he is the king and we are his people and he yearns jealousy over us that we would be his and he would be the king. Verse six, but he gives more grace therefore it says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Seven, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What's it getting at? That we get blinded in envy. That, that no matter, even if you speak reason to us, we want it so bad, we will give up anything to get it. You're like, I don't see that in the text. I'm glad you said that. Let's look. So you come down here to verse 10, or 11, sorry. Verse 9 says, show them the consequence. Show them the consequence. Verse 11, he says, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. Your daughters. Verse 13, he will take for perfumers and cooks and bakers. Your best fields. Your flock. Your servants, your employees, he's going to take all these things. He warns them. 
And in their blindness, they said, sure, take our kids. Take our daughters. Take our land. As long as we get to fit in like all the other nations. Do you see how blinded they are in envy? I can't imagine this flying in our culture, you know, mainly because people freak out when kids get the wrong type of plastic for drink beverages, right? Like, we're freaked out there. You can laugh. It was a thing, right? If we get that freaked out over that, I can't imagine us being like, hey, yeah, send them to war. We don't care, 12, 13. I mean, some of you are old enough to remember when you didn't have a choice, and that happened anyway. But the thing about this, we might not be blindly sending them to war. But the question for us is, are we offering our children at the expense of blending in with the world? Saying, yeah, I don't, whatever, I don't care what happens to my kids. We just want to fit in. We just want to be like them. We just want the accolades, the trophies, the money, the fame. We just, I don't care. Whatever. Yeah, sure, take our kids. Are we so blind in envy that we often even our own children so that we can get that blending of the world, being like the other nations? Because we'd rather fit in with them then look weird with God. Like you, you really blow trumpets and bought, you know, bang pots and like you win wars? I would rather not trust him there, but have a sword and have a chariot and my children die. So then I can be like, look, we're strong. And God warns them. She says, look, this king, he's going to take your kids. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your employees. He's going to take all of it. In verse 18, and on that day, you will cry out because of this king that you wanted, whom you chose for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you. Those are scary words, aren't they? There's nothing more scary than God says, okay, this is what you want. This is what you want. You can have it. You don't want to trust the king? You can have it. Take it. This is the scariness we see in Romans chapter 1, 28. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to do what ought not to be done. God says, you want this so bad, take it. And it says that it led to all types of ungodliness and filth. See, this is the decision we're presented within the text. Would I rather have a king that I can't see and I trust him and he tells me to do some unorthodox things and to believe some things that the world will make fun of? Or do I, do I look cool and reject him at the expense of my kids, their kids, my money, my property, my employee, at the expense of everything? And so these are the things we don't think through. Am I more concerned about my quality of life viewed by the world that they would see me as smart or, or charitable or uh, classy or rich? Or is my concern, how well am I trusting God? Am I trusting he's the creator, he's the king? My body is his, my money is his, my kids are his, whatever he wants. And no matter how bad people attack me, he's my king. He's the one I'm going to trust. 
So here's the next part of this. He's like, well, how do, how do we attack this? You know, how do we do it? And so part of it, part of it is like educating, right? It's educating each other. It's educating the kids. This is who God is. This is what God says. And, and yes, this is what he says about marriage. This is what he says about gender. This is what he says about worship. This is what he says about church, what he says about Christ. People will laugh at you. People will mock you. And we teach them. And that's good. And we teach each other. But teaching alone doesn't solve the problem, does it? I want to read a quote, and then we'll come back to a thought, and then we'll finish that. This is this was from Ralph Davis, one of the guys I was reading as I was studying. It's called the fallacy of education. It says usually the answer is that we must get used, we might must get or use funds to educate people about the harmful effects of the current villain. It is the education fallacy. And the fallacy assumes that if people only know that something will destroy them, they will leave it alone. It never reckons with the intrinsic stupidity. I love that phrase, right? Education may clarify, it cannot transform. You're like, I don't know if that's true. Look at your text. Did he educate them on what will happen? He's pretty bluntly clear in the text, isn't he? Your sons, your daughters, your land, your, your goods, your employees. He will send them out before. And what's their response? 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we might be like all the nations. And that king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They ignored everything God taught them and pursued their passion to be like the world. And how long does the king go out and fight for them? Not very long until David's back at home while other people are fighting and he's cheating on another man's wife. That plan worked out real good for them, didn't it? That's not a trick question. No. No, it didn't. So if educating's part of it, but not all of it, what's the whole thing? We have to trust the king. We have to trust the king. There comes a point where we can read our Bibles, we can pray for each other, but the absolute gut part of it is that you trust the Lord that his way's better. And you're willing to take the consequences that come through that trust. You're willing to take the shame. You're willing to forgive you're willing to show up. You're willing to offer whatever he might ask. There is a trust that says, God, it doesn't make sense to me to blow a trumpet and bang a pot, but I trust that if you said it'll bring down the walls, it'll bring down the walls. Because we can educate them. This is how God operated. But to move from education to action takes trust. This is God. He is my king, and I trust what he says. That's the ultimate question we have to get to. And that's what James 4 got to. It says submit and then draw close to him. Saying you're the king. You're the king. It doesn't always make sense, but I trust. I trust your system. I trust your word. I trust your savior. I trust your institutions, marriage, family, morality. I trust the king. It is through that lens and that lens only that we can 
protect ourselves from rejecting God as Israel rejected the Lord? Some questions for us to think through. Question one. Do I ask God, what are the consequences of my desires? See, this is very important because we kind of get that grass is greener on the other side mentality. And here's the reality. That person you're having an affair with, and you're like, oh, they're so amazing. Yeah, they're amazing until they live with you. As soon as they live with you, they'll hate you too. Okay? It's true. And sometimes you look at other people's kids, you're like, oh, if we could just have those kids. If those kids lived with you, you'd want to strangle them too. Right? There is no grass is greener on the other side. And we don't think through things like that. So what, what better way than maybe pray, say, God, am I seeing the whole picture? If I, if I make this turn, what are the unintended consequences? What are the potential things that could happen? What are the, my sons might get sent to war and my daughters might be taken? What are those consequences? And help me trust you in that process, right? Two, are the people I trust, are there people I trust more than God's word? See, this was the problem with Israel. They wanted to trust a man. Give us a man. He looks like us. He talks like us. He thinks like us. We'd rather trust him. And then we trust them at the expense of. And if there's someone that tells you to do it and you're like, it's gospel and it's not in the Bible, that's a problem. And this is what I mean by this, the trust. Do we trust God? Do we trust the king? And it's okay to listen to people if we can see that God has said that. The things Samuel say are concurrent and agree with what God has said in the past and in the present. How do we make sure God's the one we trust the most? Three, why do we envy non-Christians? That shouldn't happen, should it? Because we're not thinking through it. Sin looks fun. It looks engaging. It looks promising. But there will be a time when we cry out. And the question is, will the Lord answer? Or will the Lord's answer be, I gave you what you wanted. It's time for you to enjoy it. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? So rather than envy the world, it's better to trust the Lord. Okay? Four, is there any envy in your life? How can you work on trusting the Lord in that area? You know, maybe, maybe it's your, the image of your body, the image of your education, your salary, your status. You, you know, whatever it is, whatever you're trying to do. And here's the thing. When we're trying to be like the world, they don't actually love us. They love who we're pretending to be. People didn't respect Israel. They respected who Israel was trying to be. Because at the end of the day, they were still ruled by a God they couldn't see. True? You got to think through these things. They're pretending and trying to be something out of envy. But all it brings is a false relationship. They don't love them. They don't know their sin, their insecurity. They don't know all of these things. So how can we trust the Lord? Five, keep a running list of God's ways are better than yours or the world's. This is important because 10 years, 50 years, 60 years, 100 years from now, people need to know why do we trust the Lord? Why do we trust him? Here's why. Here's all that he's done. It helps keep it in the front of our mind instead of it exiting the back of our mind. Six, how does it cost more to have the world as your king instead of God? What are the 
maybe unintended consequences of that decision. Not going to church, not reading your Bible, not praying, you know, believing in same-sex marriage. What's the consequence of two dads raising a kid? There's a consequence to these things. What's the consequence of a kid changing their gender? What are the consequences of this? And how do I trust God more? Even though it might make me look silly. Seven, is there temptation for us to avoid being different? Even different for God. Is there something you're afraid to tell other people you believe? Like you shrink back and you're like, ooh, yeah, I'm not going to touch that. Because that's where your envy is going to come from. Man, I just wish I didn't have to deal with this. I wish we could be like them. I wish we could, you know, make the Bible not inerrant. We could make marriage like this. We could, we could make Jesus more inclusive. You know, I just wish, because I get so embarrassed. Whatever that is, it's going to tempt you. And we need to ask God to strengthen us that we could combat that, that we could just say, yeah, I believe in the Bible. This is what it says. Well, you're so, I'm, I'm sorry you think that, right? It takes courage. Eight, can you think of times when God has said no to your prayers and you have discovered afterwards what a good answer that was? This is important because if you pray enough, you'll realize, I'm so glad God didn't say yes to that. That ever happened to you? so important because when you're in the thick of God saying no, you need to know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't want this. Maybe this is bad because God's shown me before, it's better to trust him than to hear the words, obey the voice of the people. We don't want that, do we? Not a trick question, people. No. We want to trust the king. We want to trust the king. And that needs to be our heart. And in order to do that, we have to continually remember what he's done and say, I will trust him. I will trust him when it makes sense, when it doesn't make sense. I trust him because he is the most glorious, perfect king. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for 1 Samuel uh, that it is just so filled with truths for us now. God, it's our prayer that, that we would not envy the world. Um, that we would not want to replace you as our king. God, that whatever cost it may bring to follow you and love you and be like your son Jesus, we would take that cost. We would bear that burden. We would carry that hardship for your glory and out of love for your majesty, your beauty, and your provisions. May we never forget what you have done. May we teach the kids and the kids' kids and we write it down and sing about it and talk about it everywhere we go, the goodness and the greatness of our King, that we need no other King than King Jesus. Now it's my prayer that we would celebrate your provision, your love, your forgiveness, your mercy, your majesty, your beauty. We would celebrate you as the sovereign King, the only one worthy to be praised that we would never forget all that you have done. Our hearts would remain grateful. May this worship be acceptable and pleasing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.